This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Both the Trump and the Biden campaigns are reportedly assembling teams of lawyers in preparation for a potential legal battle over the results of the election. Close vote totals in any of the key swing states, including Florida, could lead to a recount similar to the 2000 presidential election. Chara Torres-Spalacy is paying close attention to the legal aspects of this election, and she says there's one thing that could prevent a prolonged legal fight, a blowout victory for either Trump or Biden. Chara Torres-Spalacy is a professor of law at Stetson University College of Law. She specializes in campaign finance and election law. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Professor Torres-Spalacy, what are you going to be watching for on the day of the election and I guess the days and potentially weeks after as well? Well, um, what I'm hoping for going into the election is that we will have a blowout one way or another, as in it'll be very clear that Biden has won or very clear that Trump has won. What might invite litigation is if there are very close vote totals in any of the key swing states, if that swing state would give the winner the presidency. So the most similar analogy is what happened in 2000 between George W. Bush and Al Gore. Uh, both of their winning the presidency hinged on whether they won Florida, and Florida mm-hmm. came down to less than 600 votes. And that ended up with a very peculiar case before the U.S. Supreme Court. And before it had even got to the U.S. Supreme Court, it was in the uh, the Supreme Court of Florida, right? That's right. Uh, so it was originally litigated as a state court case. And then the decision of the Florida Supreme Court was appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the U.S. Supreme Court did something that is peculiar in many dimensions. So on a normal day... The U.S. Supreme Court almost never takes up cases from state Supreme Courts where the question is an interpretation of state law. But if they think that it raises a constitutional question, then the Supreme Court has the ability to look into what a state Supreme Court does, even when what they are opining about is state law. So Mm -hmm. one of the things that makes Bush v. Gore weird is that the Supreme Court was essentially breaking its own, you know, informal rule about leaving state court decisions about state law alone. Mm -hmm. Has anything changed in the last 20 years that might make it less likely for a case, uh, you know, where maybe it's the state court getting involved in an election decision to then make it all the way to the US Supreme Court? Well, a few things have happened that could um, matter here. So one thing uh, is in a case called Raucho, the Supreme Court about a year ago decided that partisan gerrymandering is a non-justiciable political question. So non-justiciable political question is a fancy way of lawyers saying that courts won't hear that type of case. So there is a precedent for federal courts to say that if the question at hand is really a partisan one, that under the Raucho decision that they will decline to hear the case at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another thing that's happened is Florida changed its recount law. So during Bush versus Gore, it was possible for the Gore team to ask for a partial recount of the Florida vote. 
you can a you can no longer ask for a partial recount and b no one can ask for a recount uh, under florida law so now the recount is triggered by how close the election is uh i think it, if it's half a percentage point between the winners then you get an automatic machine recount and then if it's even closer than that, you can trigger a hand count, but there's no such thing as a candidate asking for a recount in Florida. Mm -hmm. So just to clarify on the um, the Raucho case that you mentioned and the issue of court saying we won't deal with it if it's partisan, does, that just means that if one side, say the Democrats say this is unfair, um, we want you to look at it, you, you, the, the courts will say no? Well, so the political questions doctrine is bigger than Raucho. Um, the political questions doctrine actually goes back to Marbury versus Madison, which is what creates judicial review in Article Three federal courts. Mm -hmm. And the idea with the political questions doctrine is the courts are limiting their own power to hear cases. And so uh, a classic example of um, a uh, non-justiciable political question are questions like who won an election. <laughs> For many, many years, uh, the courts would just not entertain such a, a case. And one of the things that Bush versus Gore did is it opened up, I think, Pandora's box in terms of litigators finding new causes of action to complain about when their candidate didn't win an election. Uh, and so part of this is played out through recount fights. Um, and so when there's a really close election, often lawyers will argue that the equal protection of voters has been violated, which was part of the decision in Bush versus Gore. But with the political questions doctrine, it's sort of like there's a trap door <laughs> under every litigation. And if the judges in a particular place, um, say it's an appellate court, so it's a three judge panel. If two of those three judges think that this is a non-justiciable political question, they can just refuse to hear the case, which basically means whoever is ahead uh, in a given, uh, situation so it looks like you know candidate x is ahead mm -hmm. so candidate y is trying to sue uh but if the courts just shut their their doors to those cases under the political questions doctrine the the candidate that is seemingly ahead is going to be uh you know will be in office um mm -hmm. because the courts won't give the candidate who's behind any relief mm -hmm. and does that also mean that um you know, a plaintiff can't kind of leapfrog that court and take it to a higher level? Does it sort of stop it in its tracks? Um, not necessarily. So if you have a um, lower court that invokes the political questions doctrine as a reason to not hear the case, you can then appeal that to an appellate court. And the appellate court might say, no, 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 this is, um, this is just an equal protection question. Of course we can hear that case. Mm -hmm. uh, and so then they will usually then kick it back downstairs and tell the lower court, you should hear the case. 
but what was sort of remarkable about the Rancho decision about partisan gerrymandering be non-justiciable is that's the highest court in the land. So there's nowhere to go to appeal what the Supreme Court did there, which means that uh, political parties, voters cannot litigate partisan gerrymandering cases anymore in the federal courts. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, my guest is Chara torres Professor of Law at Stetson University College of Law. So what about the notion of bellwether counties? And this might be veering a little bit into um, more of the political side of things than the law side of things, but just thinking about whether a campaign is, is looking at a, a state where they know the result is going to be close, say Florida, do you then have them zeroing in on particular counties which are kind of seen as you know, leading indicators of whether a race is going to go one way or another and actually sending teams of lawyers to that county? Well, I guess it depends on why they are sending lawyers in. Uh, if you think that there is um, a problem with the way a... Uh, supervisor of elections is running polling places Mm -hmm. and you think that that violates Florida law, then you're likely to, you know, run into court, try to get an injunction to change that behavior. But as I said earlier, under Florida law, you cannot ask for a partial recount. So you couldn't just ask for a recount of Miami-Dade or Pinellas or wherever you think there might be a problem. Mm-hmm. And I think that is generally going to be a, a good thing because uh, there's not a lot of time to litigate after the election. I mean, there's about a month, <laughs> but, uh, and I think part of what we may see if there are close elections in some swing states is litigation that is very specific to that state and how that state decided to run its election. So one of the things we've seen over the past year is lots of litigation over vote by mail, like all over the nation. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if you're shorthanding it, Democrats have been suing to make vote by mail more accessible and the Republican Party has been suing to make it harder to vote by mail. And uh, and there's been litigation all over the country about this. In mm-hmm. Texas, I think they've made a the wrong decision. They've made it very hard to vote by mail and they've decided that your fear of COVID is not a valid reason to ask for an absentee ballot. And I think this is all wrongheaded because we are still in a pandemic and people do have health concerns around COVID and being around other people and being around crowds. But what I suspect motivated this was an intuition that making it harder to vote by mail would hurt the Democratic Party. I think the irony of all of this is that when you make it harder to vote, you make it harder to vote for everyone. So mm-hmm. Republicans in Texas are going to have a harder time voting because it, they don't have no excuse absentee balloting the way we have here in Florida, for example. 
Yes, and it's interesting thinking about Texas too. Uh, one of my colleagues, Brendan Byrne, did a story about astronauts heading up to the space station who are going to be casting their ballots from space. And of course, the argument is, well, if astronauts can vote, why can't it be that easy for everyone? And of course, they're they're registered to vote in Texas because that's where they train and everything. So that is kind of an irony of the, uh, of, I guess, of the voting system, kind of looking at Texas particularly. Indeed. Well, I mean, and your point too about kind of the issues around uh, mail and ballots, I think, you know, there's been a couple of cases um, in Pennsylvania, North Carolina, where the issue of how long um, supervisors of elections have to count those votes has come up. Um, those cases have been litigated in the uh, state courts in some cases and also in the U.S. Supreme Court. Is it kind of unusual for this flurry of legal activity around those sorts of issues around the election, or do you expect that every four years or every two years? Um, There's a lot of litigation around elections, especially in presidential election years. I think we're seeing a bumper crop this year because COVID creates new difficulties, and I think the, the stakes are higher for some of these fights. So, for example, during the spring, lots of states literally moved their primaries. I think Mm -hmm. they were trying to move their primaries so that they would be beyond the COVID pandemic. And I think sort of sadly, some of them ended up moving their primaries when they're, and no one could have predicted any Mm -hmm. of this into a point where the the pandemic was actually even worse, the the second date that a primary was held in a certain state. So it's it's been, I think, more litigious this go-round because things like, do you need a witness to a, a absentee ballot? Who's uh, eligible for an absentee ballot? Uh, when does the state start counting mail-in ballots? Uh, should the state move those dates up or not? Mm-hmm. All of these things have been subject of litigation before, but when the health of voters and the health of poll workers is on the line, I think that brings sort of added um, alarm and um concern for the lawyers who are in these cases, because it's not just a matter of convenience. It's uh, a matter of making sure that voters can be healthy and that poll workers, honestly, can be healthy as well. Just given the fact that there has been such a surge in mail-in voting because of um, you know the restrictions around the pandemic and people's concerns about, you know, legitimate concerns about exposure to coronavirus, is, has that led to like a, a surge in litigation or would, would you just get, you know, the same amount of litigation, but just of a different kind if there weren't so much voting by mail happening this year? Um, you get, I think, different litigation. Um, so one of my colleagues uh, who's a professor in uh, UC um, Los Angeles, sorry, not UC Los Angeles, Loyola, Los Angeles. Sorry, Justin. So Justin Levitt is a brilliant election lawyer. And one of the things he's been tracking over this year is all of the election related suits that are basically keyed to COVID 
and he's found 200 of them. So that's more litigation than you would normally see on, on such a topic. Uh, and uh, I think, as I said, I think the stakes are just a little bit higher. And just to contextualize all of this, so the Supreme Court is still not meeting in person. And the reason that they're not meeting in person is because of COVID. At the same time, when voters ask for relief because they are concerned about contracting COVID and wanting more vote by mail or drop box options, they've largely been turned away by the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is not giving relief to voters just because they express a concern about COVID at the very same time that they are not meeting in person because of COVID. So I think there is sort of some high level, some might call it hypocrisy, double standards. They are not treating others the way they are treating themselves. Jared Torres-Pelosi, do you see some lasting change coming out of the, the flurry of lawsuits we're seeing this year, whether it's the 200 or so that you mentioned that your colleague is tracking or any of the other lawsuits that we may may have not even been filed yet? Well, I think the Supreme Court is about to change and that will make the court 6-3 um, with six Republicans and, and three Democratic appointees. Uh, and that will make the Supreme Court more hostile to voting rights arguments. And so I think at least in the short term at the Supreme Court, we're likely to see cases that are pretty hard on voters. And that could take the shape of um, you know, further dismantling the Voting Rights Act. It could take the shape of further deregulating money and politics under the campaign finance jurisprudence. There are all sorts of ways that um, democracy could be impacted by this new Supreme Court. Are you seeing a surge in interest and engagement politically from, from younger voters, whether the students that you teach or just in general? Yeah. Uh, one thing I have to give uh, hats off and credit to is uh, the young people uh, post-Parkland uh, who organized March for Our Lives. Mm -hmm. They had two basic messages. One was uh, some sensible gun control laws, and the other was to get young people to register to vote. Now, of course, they aren't the only group that is reaching out to young voters, but I think they've had a discernible impact. I think more young people are engaged in this election, and that's how we divide political power in this country. So if young people would show up on a regular basis the way their older cohorts do, politicians would start listening to the desires of young voters more. Chara Torres-Spellacy is a professor of law at Stetson University College of Law. She specializes in campaign finance and election law. Chara, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Still to come, as the 100th anniversary of the Okoe massacre draws near, we'll discuss the effort to honour the victims of racial violence that erupted on Election Day and make sure the past is not forgotten. Intersections back in a minute.
This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Next week marks 100 years since the Okoe massacre. Attempts by African-American residents to vote on Election Day triggered a violent reaction from a white mob who lynched Okoe resident July Perry and burned homes and churches, wiping the African-American community off the map. Estimates of the number of people killed in the attack range from 6 to more than 30. The city of Okoe is remembering the victims with a series of events throughout the week. We'll revisit a conversation now that aired on Intersection last year with John Ashworth and Margaret Vandiver of the Memphis Lynching Sites Project and historian Joy Wallace Dickinson with the Orange County Truth and Justice Initiative about making sure the history of these events is not lost. Joy Wallace Dickinson begins the conversation. The event in Okoy was a long time called the Okoy Riot. This happened but is now usually called the Okoy Massacre. One of the most influential and dramatic events that happened in Orange County, but for a long time just was a taboo to even talk about. Mm -hmm. I think in both the black and white communities, it happened on election night 1920. It was the first election in which women were allowed to vote. Um, Unlike a lot of cases, it did revolve around voting. And um, at the end of election day, basically... Uh, the black community of Okoy had been destroyed, and uh, a melee had erupted, and um, many people died, and uh, including one well-known victim, July Perry, who was uh, lynched in Orlando. And there is work underway now to get folks to recognize that this happened and have some kind of marker saying this is what happened on this place at this time. Right. Um, I'm a volunteer with the nonprofit Truth and Justice Project of Orange County, which is affiliated with the Equal Justice Institute in Montgomery. Then, And part of our goal is to document cases of lynching and to bring this history to the public and acknowledge it, um, study it and acknowledge it and, and commemorate it with markers. Um, and we, we've, in fact, already planned in um, had a marker approved to honor Mr. Perry that's going to be dedicated in June. We've also held a lot of events around Orange County to educate people about the history of the event and discuss it and with the goal of reconciliation and um, the feeling that you can't really heal wounds from these events unless you really talk about them and learn about them. Mm-hmm. And that is difficult to do because, as Margaret said, uh, it it involves piecing together records and documents from newspapers and people's letters and census records. It's Mm -hmm. not not so easy. Joy, what does it mean to have the work that you all, as part of the Truth and Justice Project, are doing in Ocoee and, and Orange County connected to this bigger project, this bigger mission of trying to commemorate the victims of you know, this terrible period in American history? Well, it, it has a lot to do with, I think, that in, in you can't move forward and really understand um, the problems we have with race in this country until you look at some of this really difficult history. And it is painful. Um, so we, I think we see ourselves as the work we do here is important, but it is part of a, a larger network. And um, we've learned a lot and been inspired by the work of the Equal Justice uh, Initiative in Montgomery and the the Civil Rights Museum that they've started there and the Memorial to Lynching Victims. What are your goals for making sure that people don't forget about the uh, Okoe Massacre? 
Well, one of the exciting things we have coming up, and I think our goals are just so that it people know about it. It gets forgotten and it gets very confused with other dramatic events like uh, recently, the the Groveland Four who were involved mm-hmm. in that that incident in in around 1950 have been pardoned, and people get Okoy, the Okoy massacre confused with that. They get it confused with Groveland. They get it confused with Rosewood, um, and other things. Not so much is known about it, but uh, through the programs we have, we hope that people will know about it and talk about it and talk about how to you know how we don't want things like this to ever happen again because of people really dehumanizing other other people. John. Yeah. Um, one of the other things I was going to say um, as we're talking about this is the other thing that's important to keep in mind as we talk about this, this racial terror is to understand the links between that and where we are today. Uh, there's, there's really a straight line. It's a difficult conversation, but there's a straight line between the terrorism that existed then to send the message and where we are in terms of race relations today. Where do you think we are in terms of race relations? What's your take on it? Well, I'll tell you, what, my, my take on that is this, is that we, we, haven't, we haven't dealt with the human aspect of this. I mean, we've looked at it and said this lynching is hard, but as, you, you know, as we sit here and talk about lynchings and we talk about massacres, uh, we have the Rosewood Massacre. We have the Tulsa, Oklahoma. We have Elaine, Arkansas. You know, and it just kind of goes on. Now, those are massacres. In addition to the massacres where there were a lot of people killed, you have the individual lynchings that take place. So you have these two things that are going on to send these messages. But if you look at the history of the country and say the way one group of people sees another people in this process that we have of othering each other. And that's one of the greatest challenges we have in front of us today is the way that we have othered each other. And we need to understand that all of that is sitting on top of hate, but what's sitting underneath all of that is money. And we really don't talk about, I mean, if you talk about slavery and understand that slavery was an economic system, it was an economic system. And if you understand where we are in this country today, one group of people were able to get the wealth that their labor created. Another group of people had no wealth from their labor to pass on. So you have this huge disparity and all that goes with that. Then then you lay on top of that this continuous othering that has been historically a part of our process. I mean, for 254 years, African-Americans were property. They were not people, they were property. And then you come through the Civil War, then you go through this period of saying, well, now you're their equal, and we haven't resolved any of that. And one of the things that uh, James Weldon Johnson, who wrote Lift Every Voice and Sing, actually went to the site where L. Persons was burned to death. And he said, upon looking at that and realizing that he came to realize that the problem of race is the issue of saving um, black American bodies and white American soul. And that statement is as true today as it was when he uttered it almost 100, a little over 100 years ago. So there's work to do, but is some of what you're doing mm-hmm. at the, with the lynching site project and some of what's happening here in, in Orange County and I'm sure other places as well, is that sort of part of that work? Yes, yes. I mean, in, in, in other words, the, a part of, of dealing with racial healing, mm-hmm. it's very much a part of what we do. We, we, we seek to have conversations that are difficult and uncomfortable, which I think is the only way that we make real progress where, where racial healing is concerned. You've got to have these difficult conversations. Dr. Vandiver, what do you say to people who who say 
you know, leave the past alone. It's too painful. It's too painful, and just don't dig it up. Why are you digging this up? Why are you mm-hmm. bringing this up? Why are you putting us through this? Um, I kind of think of the past as the ground we're walking on, and mm-hmm. you can ignore it if you want to, and you can pretend that there's not quicksand in front of you. But when you walk through it, you're going to sink, and you're not going to make any progress. The History does not go away simply because we choose to ignore it. Mm -hmm. Uh, If it were that simple, I think we would be way ahead of where we are right now. There's a drag, there's a pull of history that continues. And I think by acknowledging it and working through it, we can have some hope of Mm -hmm. going forward. I just wanted to mention that um, there's a whole body of social science research being done now that looks at lynching the historic geographic Uh, distribution of lynchings, and correlates that with modern uh, phenomena and have found significant correlations with the level of hate crimes enforcement, growth rates in imprisonment, imposition of death sentences, uh, executions carried out, homicide rates, housing segregation, Ku Klux Klan mobilization, and even county mortality rates. Hmm. Now, nobody is saying that historic lynching is a direct causal factor in those events. But it's clear that there is some way in which there's an enduring legacy of lynching that's played out in our modern social problems. John mentioned the economic aspect, and I think one of the things that's forgotten and is tremendously significant in the Okoye event is that there were people, black families, who owned significant property, mm-hmm. and uh, it was taken from them. And that's had tremendous effect on mm-hmm. the generations that descended from those people. I mean, their land was uh, was was lost mm-hmm. and, and resold to white owners. Is there any chance of reparation for those families? Well, that's a good question, and I think it's probably one of the things that will be discussed. Um I think one of the difficulties in the Okoye case is because the population really scattered mm-hmm. and left Okoye. It was easier. It was not easy to really trace the descendants so much, and that's one of the things our project is doing now. But um, there's there. It happened in many places, towns across the South. Practice called white capping, in which quite consciously. Mm-hmm. African Americans were driven from their property, and there's some some thought that that might have have been part of the case in Okoy. There's some evidence that it might have been planned in advance, mm-hmm. or it, you know, other evidence suggests it might have just been something that got out of town, uh, out of control that night. But um, it definitely resulted in uh, a community in which had about 200 black residents. Uh, a thriving agricultural community, and for decades after that, not one. That was true in Elaine, Arkansas. In Elaine, Arkansas, and there, they know that they killed 237 people because that's the bodies they buried, although the estimates are numbers are more like 800, and thousands of acres of land lost. And, in fact, they did a truth-telling there, and I was there as part of that. And one of the things that, and the truth-telling was done by the grandchildren of the people who fled into the swamps that survived the massacre, and one of the things they said, somebody said, well, what do you want now? I said, just give me the land back. And then another person on the panel said, well, we should be able to go to the courthouse and trace the records. You can't because the courthouse burned down. But then when you started looking across the south, there were a lot of courthouses that burned down. So to try and go back and establish that record, you can't. Or even if you find the record, it's a legal document. 
And it's not an arm's length transaction, but then how do you prosecute a non-arm's length transaction because it was at the point of fear? Well, let me ask you a question about the way history is taught then. And, and I mean, this could be something, a question for you as well, Joy, but to Dr. Vandiver, I mean, is there a need to go back and, and rethink the way that history, whether it's you know from the 1800s or the 20th century, is taught in high schools or even in universities? Oh, yes, I think there certainly is. I think we need to draw out all of these themes that we've been mentioning and tie them very explicitly to our current situation because if we ignore these things, as all three of us have said, uh, they simply are going to keep entangling us and making it difficult to move ahead in any way. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that, Joy? Yeah, I I think it's uh, history really has been traditionally uh, it's changed a lot during my lifetime, but traditionally told from a a very specific point of view that mm-hmm. really reflected the attitudes of white men in the ruling in the ruling class and what they thought was important. And one of the reasons we have Women's History Month and Black History Month is because. There were so many people whose stories just weren't told at all. Um, you know, women as well as African Americans and other minorities, just their their attainments were not perceived as particularly important. Um, they were not in positions um, where they had influence. I mean, I think one of the great lines from the musical Hamilton at the end is, who lives, who dies, who tells the story. And you know the people that tell the story really control it, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's it's just from one point of view. So, is the measure of success for a historian, whether you're involved in this project, uh, the Truth and Justice Project, or anything else, is to make sure that some stories that haven't been given some airtime actually get told? Yeah, I think that's a, an important part of it. Mm-hmm. You know, is is to represent the people that didn't get a chance to tell their story. John Ashworth, is there an endpoint that you have in mind for the lynching sites project, or is this ongoing? I don't know that there's an endpoint that we have. We will get to a point where we will no longer be able to to necessarily put a mark up to an individual, and we may wind up because you know you've got parking lots have been paved over, you've got big developments there. But I think we will get to a point where we will recognize as many as we can find. We'll do something along those lines. But the more important work that we do will be towards educating people and having this conversation. I mean, there are, there are a lot of people that are coming into this, but that's, we only just begin to scratch the surface. So do I see an end point for the work that we are doing? And many, many others like us across the country, no, I don't see an end point to that anytime soon. We're talking about 400 years of this. So this is not something that you will do for four or five or ten years and it will go away. We will need to continuously work at this. It must be heartening though. I mean you talked about the high school students who made their own marker for one yes, of these yes. one of these tragedies and, and they're actually kind of taking their initiative to, to research the history and do something about it. You know, I, I you know I have to honestly say and we've all seen the pictures of, you know, two young children, one black, one white or whatever, and the two of them, they have no problem dealing with each other. It's when they come into the larger society and it's you know, sometimes we, we make ourselves comfortable by saying, Well the young people in high school don't have this problem, they'll get it right. If they didn't have the other outside influences once they went home to their churches, shopping, et cetera, et cetera, they'd get it right. But it is very much a part of our DNA. I absolutely applaud what, what you know what, what they're doing here in Orange County and across the country because it is getting this truth out there. It is confronting people with it. And I'm finding that people who I would have considered to be the silent majority before are saying, no, we really have to talk about this. And there are more and more people 
that are willing to come to the table and have the conversation. Uh, unfortunately, they don't sell ads like the folks who jump up and down and scream and riot and stuff. But I do feel that there is a groundswell of people of goodwill who are beginning to say, let's have this conversation. I was invited to speak at a white church in Scottsboro, Alabama, the home of the Scottsboro Boys. You know, uh, that was nine young black boys between the age of 12 and 19 that were accused of raping two white females. One of the white females said, no, that, that, that's not happened. I was lying. The state of Alabama eventually exonerated all of them. But I'm saying that's and, and, and that's that, that speaks to goodwill among people that says, you know, this is difficult. This is uncomfortable. And for a lot of people, there is that power structure that still controls things, that they feel threatened and jeopardized, even though they want to have that conversation. Uh, but we are making progress. You know, I'm, I'm hopeful. Well, John Ashworth is the executive director of the Lynching Sites Project of Memphis. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Also joined by Joy Wallace-Dickinson. She's an historian and a task force member of the Truth and Justice Project. Joy, thank you as well. Thank you. And Dr. Margaret Vandiver, a retired professor with the University of Memphis, and she is researching for the Lynching Sites Project. Dr. Vandiver, thank you as well. Thank you so much. And that conversation first aired on Intersection in March 2019. Still to come from the lunch counter protests of the 1960s to the protests about racial injustice today, we'll talk with former state legislator Joyce Cummings Cusack. Intersection's back in a minute. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. When Joyce Cummings Cusack was a high school student, she fought for racial equality by protesting at segregated lunch counters in DeLand. Now 78, Cusack says she's discouraged by how much racial inequality remains today. Joyce Cummings Cusack is a former member of the Florida House of Representatives and a former Volusia County Commissioner. She served as the Democratic leader pro tempore of the Florida House in 2006. And in the 1960s, she was part of a group of students who took part in lunch counter protests at the Woolworths in Deland to protest segregation. Thank you so much for joining me. Quite welcome. It's an honor to be with you. So... Thinking back to the protests that erupted nationwide this summer and are still going, protests over police brutality and racial injustice, I wonder how those protests affected you and maybe what you were thinking as you saw that unfold. The thing that reminds me more is that the more things change, the more they remain the same. That's that's not original, but I believe that. I, mm-hmm. In 1960, during the lunchroom kind of demonstrations, that was Woolworths and McCrory's Five and Dime stores. Mm-hmm. Things were not good. I went to an all-segregated school from first grade through 12th grade. And during the lunchroom kind of demonstrations, it was just much unrest in the country. Our school, Euclid High School, a Euclid school for colors, as it was called, uh, decided that the senior class members, we decided that we would go downtown and have a seat. It's not right that we could shop all day in Woolworths or McCoy's and could not have a, a Coke at the lunch counters. Uh, we could stand in the corner and drink it, but we could not have a seat at the counters. And so, you know, that's just, that was not acceptable in 1960. 
And, you know, prior to that, it was even worse. Uh, I lived in a segregated society. I left the all-colored Euclid school going to Florida A&M University in Tallahassee, which was at the time a state school for minorities, for blacks. And so I went and from Deland, left Deland, going there on the back of the bus, went to the bus station where you have two areas, one for colors and one for whites. Same thing as in Tallahassee, one for colors, one for whites. So I, I grew up in a society where we were separate but not equal. And so it was just that with what has happened in our society in the last almost four years just reminds me so much of what was going on back in the 1950s and and 60s. It was just as much segregation uh, in the land as it was anywhere else. But I have to say that when we were at our lunchroom kind of demonstration, it was the police that separated those that would want to attack us. The police were, in that situation, they did the right thing. So so you you were very politically active from a pretty young age then. I mean, taking part in those lunchroom counter protests as a as a high school student, I mean, that, that, that kind of was the, the foundation for your political career, right? That's right. That's right. How important were voting issues then? I registered to vote at the age of... Uh, 18, and I have voted. I can't ever remember an election that I did not vote in all my life. And so I, I just know that if you're going to change things, it has to be done in voting to have good representation. So I, uh, I've been active politically through the system, trying to make change and make it at the voting block. You were elected to the uh, Florida State House in the year 2000, and at the time you were the first um, black representative from Volusia County to be elected to that to, to a role in the Florida House of Representatives. But before that, as a nursing student and then a registered nurse, had you sort of maintained your political aspirations and activities? Yeah, I was very active in uh, civic things in the community, my first position was I was a registered nurse, one of the first nurses of color to, to be to practice in Deland. There were no registered black nurses in Deland when uh, at the hospital I, I worked at Fish Hospital in Deland. That hospital is no longer there. So I was very active as a nurse changing things. When I went to work at Fish, there were segregated lunch counters, lunch rooms in the, in the hospital. You worked side by side with a person that was not black. You time to go to lunch, you would go in the, uh, the black room and the lunch room, count, lunch room for blacks, and she would go in the lunch room for whites. Now we worked. So this is just injustice. This is just unacceptable. And 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 I just could not live in this society and not speak out against such blatant injustices toward people just because of the color of their skin.
and and so did that change in your time at that hospital? Like, did that become integrated? Yes, yes. I was the first nurse that went to. Uh, if I'm going to work in the operating room with nurses all day, you think I'm going time for lunch? I'm going in the lunch room for blacks, and, and everyone in my department, which was all nurses, go in the lunch room mm-hmm. for white. No way. The supervisor of nursing came to get me the day that. I came to work there, said, let's go to lunch together. She was smart enough to know me and my reputation about quality and and making sure that justice was prevailed. So she knew I wasn't going to do that. She just knew I had a reputation of being uh, outspoken about injustices. And so that integrated the lunchroom. And even when I had my first baby before I was a nurse, my baby was going on the colored ward of the hospital. The the same hospital where you later worked? Same hospital. I I grew up here. Four generations from Deland. I'm a local. I wanted to read something that you wrote for the West Volusia Beacon back in February. You wrote, the way I accomplished this, it's all about relationships, about breaking bread with people, about making change as you go along. It's about investing time and energy in doing good. As I look forward, I know folks just like those reading this right now are going to be the ones to push things to a better day. Now, that was before the pandemic, before the protests that erupted over the summer, how do you feel about things now? Are you still optimistic that um, the next generation will carry forward the work that you started? Yes, yes. I, I, I'm I'm more optimistic because if you notice the demonstrations that we are seeing today, it's not just folk of color. It's all races recognizing the injustices, and they are marching together. And when I was growing up, that did not happen. It was all black marching and getting into good trouble. You see, it's young people have always been leaders of change. And if you will take note of what's going on right now, it's young people marching together in the, in that army. And with the COVID virus, folk are glued to these TVs. Many folk in this generation never knew about the injustices that prevailed it was in our society in the 60s and before. Mm-hmm. So this kind of gives you an idea. When you see folk being beat and, and killed, they always, that happened all, that happened even mm-hmm. more so in my growing up days. But you didn't have public TV. You didn't have the TV watch, mm-hmm. but you didn't have a virus that kept everybody home and eyes glued to the TV. So the knowledge that this virus had brought to America is the fact that injustice has prevailed continuously in our society. And now it's open. People see it. Right. So there's, there's still more work to be done, clearly. Oh, so much. We have just begun. We're still... It still take its baby steps right now. I think what's happening, we're turning around with this person that's leading this government and a lot of people from my generation. This man gives them permission to to speak these injustices. And so it's kind of taken, there was a period of time that you did not see this, but now it's so prevalent 
it's just raising his head. And there's good and bad in that. The good being is that many folks say, oh, I didn't know that. I, I, uh, that's so wrong. That shouldn't happen, you know, different generation. So we made some steps. We make two steps forward and one step back. Um, have you voted? Oh, yes, I voted. I got my, <laughs> yeah, my, my dad is 90 years old. We received uh, ballots uh, on that uh, Thursday, I think it was, and filled out that Thursday, hand-delivered to the supervisor of election, not to the box, but they put it in a clerk's hand, they put it in a box inside of the supervisor of election office. So you and your, your father, who is 90 years old, yes. voted together? Yes. Mm-hmm. Is that a is that a tradition for you? Yes, it has been since my mom died. They used to uh, do. They always vote by mail, and um, but since my mom died uh, eight years ago, I have he and I have always done it together. Get our ballots and we talk about it and we vote and we uh, turn them in. Normally we can put it in the mail, but. This time, no, you can't put it in the mail. I, I don't, I don't trust the mail. See, if I say that, you take one step forward, two steps back. As soon as you let your guard down, thinking things have changed, but I'm telling you, if things have changed in many ways, but there's still so much racism in the world today that it sometimes it worries me so much that I work so hard to try to make a difference and sometimes I'm I'm so discouraged right now. I'm discouraged about the state of affairs. I'm worried of as to where we're going as a people. And that was former Florida State Legislator Joyce Cummings Cusack. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find archived episodes on our website, wmfe.org slash intersection. Your support makes programs like Intersection possible. Make a contribution online at wmfe.org slash support. Thanks for listening. I'm Matthew Petty.